I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Such an incredible episode with Sean Nelson, founder and CEO of LoveSack. He's had quite a journey uh, starting his company in 1998, and uh, we hear all about his journey and can't wait for you to also hear his opinions about what it takes to really be a successful person. And I can't wait for you to hear what he thinks it really takes to be successful. Let's jump in right now. Let's start at the beginning. So I'd love to get a picture of Sean as a kid. You mentioned that you're currently in San Diego. Talk to me about what you thought you might be doing when you grew up. Were you the creative kid that was always selling things or setting up ideas? Who was Sean? Yeah, you know, I was not one of these, uh, I I was a weird mix. I was not one of these kids who drops out of high school or college and tells you to like, go become a millionaire. You don't need it. need any of that. I was, I was a straight A student, um, kind of all the way through, but I was a major troublemaker. And I think that a lot of my creativity came from, uh, finding creative ways growing up in Salt Lake city, Utah to be a bit rebellious and, uh, think of wild ways to entertain <laughs> myself as a, as a young person and it, and it really was an outlet, you know, without, without hurting anyone, without, you know, without, uh, destroying any meaningful property, but we found lots of crazy ways to entertain ourselves. And, and meanwhile, you know, so I, I was kind of hanging out with the group of kids that were, that were a bit nuts in high school, but I don't even think they knew that I was like a straight A student and I was, uh, learning the piano and I, I, can sing and play. And I have all these, I have all of these, I'm kind of like a jack of all trades, but master of none. And uh, somehow it's all played into, I guess, uh, where life has led me today. So you're in San Diego now. Did you leave Salt Lake? Yeah. So the, the book in this, I made the first love sack 10 days out of high school. So you ask who I was as a kid. I was still a kid Wow. when I made the, and it wasn't called the love sack. It was just like, I was sitting on my parents' couch watching TV. I thought it'd be really funny to have a beanbag like this big, right? From me to the TV, got off the couch, drove down to the fabric store, bought some fabric, came home. And so that's, that's what I'm describing, right? Like I was a very impulsive person. Like if we could think of it, we could do it. And I think that, you know, upon reflection, of course, this, uh, I call it get off the couch mentality. Like a lot of people have ideas, but do you get off the couch, drive down to the fabric store, buy the fabric and, and start it? And, and I mean, you know, love sack wouldn't exist had I not done that. And that was at 18 years old. And I was going, I was just about to begin university, university of Utah. I lived in my parents' basement, which allowed me to sort of roll out fat. My mom was a ballet teacher for 40 years in that basement. And, and after she retired, I got to live there. And so I had this space 
that I could roll out fabric and cut them out. So I began making them for friends and family who saw it. And that was the genesis of Love Sack. And so it was a side hustle as I was going through college. And since then, you know, the companies, I mean, been through nine lives <laughs> and raised every kind of money from, you know, weird debt, friends, family, venture capital, private equity. Now we're publicly listed on NASDAQ. Did about half a billion in sales last year. And of course, grow probably the fastest or one of the fastest growing furniture companies in the United States for many years now and continue to be and have been worth more than a billion dollars, depending on the, on, on the day or the condition of the market. So it's been a wild ride, taking me to live in different countries, uh, taking me to live in different states. All my kids were born in Connecticut when we moved the company out there for a time. And now I live in San Diego. So it's just all over the map. <laughs> I'm dying to know. So did you know how to sew? Yeah, I mean, that first sack, I, I brought the fabric home and cut it into two figure eights, like a baseball, and yeah, stuck it on my mom's sewing machine and tried to sew it together with my home ec seventh grade sewing skills. You know, I'd made my sister some fuzzy slippers for Christmas sort of thing. And I love it. Figured I could do it. Got about, you know, I don't know, a quarter of the way in, really, jammed up my mom's sewing machine on the thick fabric, but my, my uh, girlfriend's mom finished sewing it up for me, put a zipper in it. And I began filling it with stuff, you know, cut up all my parents' camping mattresses, you know, like piece of yellow foam with a bungee cord around them, cut those up on a right. paper cutter, like chop them into strips, chop those into squares. And that was the best stuff. Like we had tried beanbag beads. They'd made a mess. We had tried, you know, packing peanuts, but old blankets, but like that foam really gave this thing a different quality, you know, squishy. And if you've ever sat in a love sack, they never go flat. They last forever. I meet people who I sold them to back in college, who still have them today. And so I was, you know, really proud of that. And that actually let that, that right there, which was not intentional, led to our whole ethos today, which is around sustainability. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Thinking about what's for dinner, but you haven't had a minute to even think about it before now? Well, let's not make that mistake again. I have a tip for you. Factor. Stress-free, delicious, ready-to-eat meals, just perfect for spring and summer yumminess. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes or less. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options keto, vegan, veggie, or calorie smart, Factor has you covered. Discover more than 60 add-ons every week too, like breakfast and on-the-go lunch choices, snacks and beverages now too. Stay fueled and feel good all day long with whatever they are creating over at Factor for you. And the best part, each meal is ready to eat in just two minutes or less. And who wouldn't want that? Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. Get started today and fuel up for your spring and summer goals. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash golden50 and use code golden50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code golden50 at factormeals.com slash golden50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. That's code GOLDEN50 at factormeals.com slash GOLDEN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Products that can actually sustain, things that can actually last a lifetime. Like no one's talking about that. Like everyone's recycling, everyone's making stuff out of recycling. And we do that too. But we've taken it further and it's become our entire now strategic approach to design. And it's going to be what leads LoveSack to be here in 50 years. And I'm very proud to be building a company like that. And it's certainly not my intention when I began sewing that thing up uh, 24 years ago. I mean, I always talk about when entrepreneurs have ideas and obviously you wanted to create a really comfortable beanbag chair as you were talking about, but then you started to realize pretty quickly that no one was really doing what you were doing, the internal part of the chair. And so you're you're creating a new category in an industry. Did you realize that back then? Or did you, I mean, what was it that was kind of allowing you to know that this was okay, I guess? You know, I began this thing without any kind of plan. It was not, I was not thinking about a category. I was not thinking about competition. I was just making, in fact, it it was three years after I made the first one in 95 before my neighbor finally convinced me to make them one. I I mean, it took me three weeks to cut up that stupid phone. I was not going to do that again, but they bugged me and bugged me. They'd see me driving down the street with it to go to the drive-in movies or the beach or whatever. We'd throw in the back of a truck. and, And so my point is, I, look, I'm not sharing this 
as anything I'm proud of. I'm just, you asked, and this is the real story. Like I, I finally made them one and then their friends wanted one and their friends wanted one. And, and, and it might sound like a runaway success. It wasn't, this was a side hustle that made me no money. It took all my money. You know, every time I, every time we ever made a, a, a dime from making and selling a love sack, you know, we had to fix the van. We had to fix the, the foam shredder. We were using the back room of this furniture warehouse. I mean, it was three years of just survival as I was trying to get through university. And by the end of it, I just wanted to quit. I, I wanted to close it down. And in fact, it took those people who owned one saying, you can't close love sack. I love my love sack. So we went, we took it to a trade show in Chicago. We showed it hoping to sell, you know, more than one at a time. Sure enough, we got this huge order from, from a national retailer that allowed us to, that, they had no idea it was me and a friend and like this wood chipper foam shredder thing. But I think there's still a lesson in that, you know, you just do the next thing and, and the next thing came and, and we got that order. We had then had to build a factory. We then had to source out of China, you know, uh, and we just kept doing the next thing. And um, this thing that was sort of a side hustle that I was trying to desperately get out of and get to my real job waiting for me. I had this job waiting for me at this big company in China, it's a long story. I speak Mandarin Chinese and I was over there. The point is, is, is like, <laughs> we just kept doing the next thing. And now today, you know, we believe now we sell more couches than almost any of our competitors. And I'm, th I'm talking about the biggest furniture brand names you can think of. Love Sack sells more couches than any of them. And we have one line of couch and we will become very quickly, you know, the dominant player in, in what is a category that everyone in the nation has. There is no one in the world almost in any kind of home that doesn't have a couch. And I think we make the best one. Now I could never have predicted that. It was like one thing led to another, led to another, and we'll get to how sectionals came to be, I'm sure. But it came from just doing the next thing. You touched on this, but the newest product that you have, the Sactional Stealth Tech Sound and Charge System. So you have a patent on that product as well? Yeah, we have a lot of patents. LoveSac has over 40 issued patents. Um, Sactionals have become more than 80% of our business. So these are these are couches that change and grow with you. You can add to them. My, my Sactionals in the next room, I'm sitting on one right now, but uh, some of them are 15 years old. Um, they're wearing their 10th set of covers. You can arrange, rearrange them. Our latest edition, the Stealth Tech, is a completely invisible uh, sound system, wireless sound system integrated into the sofa. You don't see anything. It looks exactly like what I'm sitting in. It's, that's what makes it beautiful. But it provides uh, home audio that the closest thing I can liken it to would be to sitting inside your automobile watching watching a movie. Like it's it's around you. You're inside of it. And it's crisp and beautiful. And we're very proud of that. We invented that. So now we're competing in home audio. You know, this brand called Love Sack that began with a, the, this giant not beanbag is a real player in home audio. And we're not kidding around. And we will do more in that category as well. So as you have been doing this for a while, I guess officially since 1998, how do you think people's lifestyles have changed? And maybe even more so in the last couple of years? And what are you seeing in terms of home furnishings and overall how people are living? Well, I mean, the last two years in particular, right? Uh, I think I'm emblematic of it. I'm sitting here on my couch working. I think many people are. There are, you know, the work from home revolution that was driven by COVID. I think the entire office space and the situation, you know, everything's changing there. 
and whether companies want to wrestle with it or not, they will be primarily remote over the next few years. So the couch is like ground zero for family life now, even some, some of work life. And so it was a great category to have fallen into. And we fell into it because in our first love sack stores, these are giant, not beanbag stores. There was a couch in the corner just to kind of look pretty, but uh, people kept trying to buy the couch and we couldn't sell the couch. We were trying to sell them the giant, you know, not beanbag. But finally we said, well, we should be able to sell the couch, but it's a pain in the butt, you know? So, so again, one thing led to another. We just wanted to make a couch. You could shrink down like we do a love sack and we broke them apart and we invented sectionals, this modular changeable thing. But my point is um, all of these attributes that sectionals represent, you know, changeability, movability, relocatability, washability, really play into people's modern lives. You know, the open concept, the great room concept, the kitchen great room stealth tech, right? It was in, almost invented by my wife because when I got in our own home, around to trying to wrestle with having surround sound speakers right here off the kitchen is like, what, there's nowhere to put them and didn't exactly want to cut holes in the ceiling. And by the way, the audio isn't good there anyway. Like all the reverberation in a rectangle room, like it's actually terrible audio. What most people think of is really fancy. I got speakers in the ceiling. It's not good. Stealth tech solved all that, right? And so my point is as, and, and you could call it luck, Right. But as Richard Branson, a mutual friend would tell you, as he told me laying on the roof of Necker Island after I won a million dollars on his TV show, it's, that's a whole other story, right? On uh, the rebel billionaire back in 2005, I won this reality TV show with Richard Branson and we're laying there talking about life and religion and God and everything. And he said to me, I believe we make our own luck. And at the time it bothered me because like luck, like, like you're going to, I don't know. I didn't like the concept, but, but once you've experienced a lot of bad luck in your life, you can't not believe in luck, uh, good or bad. And because sometimes things are just totally outside of your control. And if, if, you know, you'll go nuts if you can't, you know, just throw it to the whims of luck. My point being I've since come around and I, I really have thought about those words from one of my mentors, uh, deeply. And, and I think that Love Sack has, you know, created its own luck by doing the next thing, by taking action. And here we are today now as the disruptor in the furniture category that no one sees coming and they don't, not even my competitors. They don't, they, 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 they pay no attention to us because we were the beanbag brand under the escalator, like in the mall for years and years. And yet we will eat their lunch and we, when we already sell more couches than any of them, and we will continue to, and it's the biggest category within the home cat home furnishings category. My point is, and now by the way, we'll compete in home audio. I think that love sack right now offers the coolest and most, uh, credible and useful home audio system on the planet. And it didn't come from one of the names you'd think of in home audio, one of the big brands. It came from this not beanbag brand called Love Sack. And, and I think you'll see us do hundreds of millions in home audio just in the next few years. And I don't think anyone saw that coming. And we didn't see it coming because, again, we were just doing the next thing, right? My wife didn't want speakers in the ceiling. So how do we say? Well, I mean, the obvious place, the obvious place where it should be is right here. It's behind me. It's around me. It's under me. And, and so that drove us into home audio. And to be audacious enough to think that we could do it and do it with elegance, you know, and we have. It, we have almost no warranty issues. It's a beautiful product. It works extremely well and, and, and it's, exp and it's not cheap. 
you know, I think that we have, in, in a lot of ways, you could say, well, you know, we're very lucky to be in this category at this time when everyone was on lockdown and now they're thinking about their home and they're remodeling and they're spending money on the home category and, you know, Love Sacks blowing. We were blowing up before COVID, but COVID was just like another turbo boost. And then coming out of COVID, everyone's life has changed and we're more relevant than we ever have been. Well, if that's not luck, I don't know what is, but we did put ourselves in the right place at the right times. You can definitely hear your passion. And uh, I love talking to founders because you can always hear it. I mean, they know the why behind the brand and all the stories. And it's uh, definitely shining through in this conversation for sure. When you think back on those early days of Love Sack and talking to you and hearing you, I mean, you were definitely learning as you went along. I mean, did you feel like you needed to hire all these industry experts in to come and show you how to do things? And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on sort of a new entrepreneur coming in. Do you need to hire people who have had tons of experience or are they actually going to slow you down? Oh man, I could write a book on that topic. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> from, yeah, fairly right. Fairly early days hired. I was always hiring people older than me, more you know, because I was eighteen, twenty one, twenty two, twenty three as we got going. But I don't think that my ego really let some of those people lead in the way that that they could have in the early days, and I think it led to our downfall in many respects. You know. Um, shortly after winning a million dollars on TV, you know, we had to raise venture capital, um, pay off a bunch of debt. We were growing like you know, too fast and it made a lot of the same mistakes that a lot of brands make early on and, um, go through a full reorganization. It was messy. It was ugly. And it was, to be honest with you, I don't think until a decade beyond that, that I really got to the point where I was able to embrace top talent the way that I do today and really allow my ego to let them really lead. And it's hard to describe, but what's crazy is there, there really are people out there who know what they're doing and in, in their realm, you know, whether we're talking about marketing, you know, consumer research, whether we're talking about um, operating a business, you know, process in, in every discipline, there are experts. And the funny thing is they, 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 they may want to be me, but they can't be, they don't expect to be actually, and they don't necessarily even want to be most, most of the time. Um, they, they just want to do what they do well and at a place that they can really have an impact. And once you, once you really are humble enough to seek out the best talent, meaning they're all better than you, like and I mean that, like, it's a trite phrase, like hire better than you. You hear it all the time. But I mean, you have to be really sincere about it. You have to hire people that are a total threat to your existence because they're so good. They could replace you in every realm and then let those people make you very successful. And they will make your company very successful that you own or that you own a piece of or whatever it is. And they will and do it gladly. And they'll make tons of money doing it too. But, but I don't think that I really... I, I always hired great people from the beginning and people that were experts, but I don't think I, I let go enough early enough on to really let those people have the kind of success. You know, like I had to be involved in every decision and this and that and the other. And once, once I finally let go enough to let those people really prosper, and of course they have to be people you can trust. They have to be people that, and the sad part is you don't always know. And in fact, you never know 
with a high level executive or a top talent, you won't know for two years. I mean, you'll have an instinct like, oh, they're awesome or they're amazing. But it takes two years before you really know what you have. So you better take your time to make those decisions very carefully. Bring them on with all the good faith and then let them run. And hopefully you're right. And I've had a few wrong and they hurt and they take time to recover from whatever that means. Uh, the organization, what have you, or the, you know, the lost opportunities, but more than not, I've got them right, particularly in the last 10 years of our existence. And the results are obvious, you know, love sex just exploded where we really are doing really well. And I'm really proud of the organization we're building. And, uh, but that took me a long time to learn those lessons in the way that I understand them today. I think what you touched on is, so there's two different types of experience. There's experience, I think, that people hire for that helps them get the job done. I mean, whether it's a CFO or head of finance or or even a head of marketing. But then I think the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make early on, especially if they don't have experience in an industry, is going and hiring somebody else with experience in an industry. And I think like that's the hard thing because- if they've never been in a company that is innovating at the rate that you are, right, that they're almost going to slow you down along the way in terms of you saying, we're going to rip up a bunch of you know foam and put it in. Everybody be like, no, that's not how we make sofas, right? Yeah. That's not how we make beanbags. And so did you ever run into that? Oh, I mean, yeah, I'll go to a very early story because it illustrates the point so well. When we first invented sectionals, so if you understand sectionals, you can buy a bunch of seats, buy a bunch of sides, and build anything you want. They're kind of like Legos. And, but there's only two components, seats and sides, and it's really quite magical. Now, we came up with that idea by tearing apart couches just for the purpose of trying to put them in a box and make them shippable, make them so we could deal with them. And along the way, through that process, we discovered, oh my gosh, when, once you do that, you can have removable covers. They can fit like a glove. Unlike all the other kind of slip cover sofas out there, these can look like upholstery, but you know, they can be washable in the wash. All these advantages that came with sectionals. But those first prototypes that were basically these rectangles we built in our garage. And and I remember we took them to the owner of the factory that we were renting the back room of. It was a proper sofa factory. And I said, Hey, we have these prototypes and these drawings but I need you to make them properly for me. I can't put the springs and I don't have the technology like you do on your furniture lines to build them the right way. So here's the prototypes. Here's a drawing. Make this for us. Here's a few hundred dollars. We'll be back and, you know, like, let me know when they're done. And so I go back there in a couple of weeks and this furniture expert, you know, he's built these prototypes theoretically for me. He calls me back, says, come see it. And he shows me this little sectional in the corner, you know, like a sectional you'd find at any of our, comp- like anywhere been around for a hundred years, like a sectional. It has a corner piece and a middle piece and an ottoman. And you can kind of arrange, rearrange it a little bit, but they slide apart if you sit on it too fast. And it, and this one had a slip cover. It looked like a floppy, you know, slip cover, like a sheet over. And I, I said, no, 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 no. Where's the thing I gave you? He said, oh, that, that'll never work. He said, look, I've been making furniture for 40 years. You, my daddy made furniture for 40 years before that. Like that thing will never hold together. It'll never sit right. It, it's, you know, it'll be rickety. I was, I'm like, that's not what I asked for. So we took it to another one, Al, down the street. And we had worked with Al on different upholstery projects. And I said, Al, here's the prototypes. Here's the drawings. Will you make this for us? He said, yep, no problem. Came back in two weeks. He did the same thing. He made me a little sectional. He said, these will do so great in your stores. And I said, no, no, no. Where's the thing I left you? He said, oh, that'll never work. He's like, I've been making furniture for 50. I was like, oh my gosh. These furniture experts 
would were unwilling to even I gave it to them and they were unwilling to even try. And so there are exactly zero executives at LoveSack that come from the furniture industry today. And you can tell in companies that are growing at your rate too. I mean, the, the exact same thing happened to us with Hint. I mean, we I wanted to produce a product that didn't use preservatives. And, you know, having people from the big soda companies, everybody, they would yes me initially, and then they wouldn't produce the product that I wanted to see produced. And bottlers that had worked for um, soda companies as well, I was like, I want to produce this product, and how do we do it? And everybody's like, you can't. And I'm like, well, how can we? And so we just kept working until we did it. And that's what we did for the industry. We created a product that didn't use preservatives. And everybody thought you had to have it because they had been working in big companies and thinking that's how things are done. And I think that it's the people that think differently and come from outside of an industry are really the ones that are going to change, change an industry, change the world. Yeah. Well, I think the key is not to blow off talent or training or, or experience, you need it in the discipline, like marketing, like accounting, like finance, like, like design. But somehow you need to cling on to what makes you unique. And so somehow, you know, I think at LoveSack, we've done that. We've tried to do that. And I think that's where a founder plays a significant role in a brand, um, like it or not, like the founder or not, like who they are or not, right? The trick is, I think m- most founders, because they are audacious, headstrong people to begin with, you know, they, they brought themselves into existence, like in business, you need, it's like, you need, you need that stubbornness on one hand, but if you, if you uh, exert that stubbornness in every realm, then you end up with an organization that will always be stunted by, to the degree of your expertise and your expertise, while you may be okay at a bunch of things. Like I was when I was a kid, I was, I was good at a bunch of things. And that's what, again, brought me into existence. It was, I was able to get a company going because I could even do a little bit of accounting and I could even do a little bit of, but like you have to then extract yourself and boil it down to then, okay, as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, what are the things that I can truly let go of to the right kind of people? And, and what, and where, where are the realms where I need to remain totally involved in? And, and so anyway, it's, it's tricky and it's, and it's an arc and your role in a company has to change over time. And I think like, it took me way too long to learn that sadly, like I could have done this much quicker if I had learned that sooner. Um, but thankfully we're still here and we're crushing it and, you know, and we've, we've, we've made it this far. I love hearing that. And you are still very involved in the design and the vision of the company, which is, uh, you can always tell great companies when the founder is still involved. You mentioned Richard Branson, of course, you know, he is a great example of that as well. And super, super cool to really hear a lot more about your company. So when, when you think about success and sort of every point along the way that, you know, you've had lows and highs and you're now a public company. I mean, you've been through an incredible journey from making beanbags just out of high school, right? I mean, this is amazing to think back on. What do you think is the key thing that creates success? And, you know, if you were to look at your own journey, what do you think is it about you 
like you didn't just snap your fingers and this thing is, you know, doing what it is today. I mean, most incredible companies, um, founder led companies to be a founder and the CEO of the company for, you know, many, many years is a, is a massive task. And, and you seem quite humble as well. So what, what's the formula? Yeah. And, and my answer to that, uh, is, um, very clear to me anyway. The answer to that, as I see it, is self-awareness. And, you know, I've been preaching this for a long time. I've thought about it for a long time. Read the book Emotional Intelligence back when it was written in the early 2000s. It's now required reading at LoveSec, by the way. We have three books that are required when you join the company, and that's one of them, even though it's a little bit dated. But um, sadly, even though I knew it and preached it for a very long time, it took me a very long time to achieve a level of self-awareness that really had the outcome necessary to drive success. We had plenty of success along the way, but like I said, I think I could have done this even sooner if I had learned some lessons uh, faster. And so I could, and the nice thing about that answer is that it can apply to any human, any, any leader right? You may be very different than me uh, in your expertise and your background and your personality, what have you. Um, but the answer still, from my, in my opinion, holds. If you can truly be honest with yourself and others about, about what you're best at, and also not just what you're best at, but also like uh, your interactions with others, uh, you know, your is my ego getting in the way? Is, is, is my motivation this or that? You know, if you can really be honest with yourself and really push yourself toward that, then most of the answers become apparent. And, 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 you know, it's hard for me maybe to articulate what I'm trying to express, but um, I think that most people are lying to themselves a lot of the time. And we have to, to survive sometimes and protect our own ego and protect our, you know, but um I think that when we when we're able to get really honest with ourselves and those around us, even then we're able to attract that kind of honesty. Um, we're able to attract those kinds of individuals to work with us in their capacity and their expertise, and they bring that, and they're able to. And it's just very, it's a very powerful thing. And I think that some, if you're not, often it will be forced upon you. <laughs> like if you're not brutally self aware. Um, in some form or fashion, it will be forced upon you by those around you or by the marketplace or, or the outcome. Um, because if you really look at, you know, strategic, for instance, strategic missteps, you know, look at the classic, this is such a dumb one. It's probably not relevant, but it, you know, pops to mind, like the classic, it's easy to throw Kodak under the bus, right? Like, like they should, like all they needed to do, they, they had the technology, they could have, they had the size, they had the scale, they were unwilling to go digital. They stuck to their guns. And that's the, that's the perfect example. Like there's a time to be stubborn and there's a time to not be stubborn. Right. And that, but, but what it required was brutal honesty and someone in that organization or some, or many in that organization must not have been brutally honest with what they were observing and what, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know the, I don't know the whole story, but my point is, I think that many organizations and many individuals, particularly in leadership positions are just not brutally honest enough, particularly with themselves. And also it to your point, not hiring, them. you know, people that are better than you, but that comes, that comes from not being brutally honest, you know, and, and it's an insecurity and it's amazing 
when you are willing to let go and, and embrace that brutal honesty, it, it's amazing how many other good people there are out there who don't want to try and steal your company away from you necessarily, who don't want to try and be you or replace you. They just want to be on a rocket ship with you. And, and those people are out there, but you have to be willing to, cause, but they're not going to get on your rocket ship if they don't think that they can actually hold the stick in their hands, whatever they're, you know, and you got all these different sticks, all these different control panels, like on the Starship Enterprise, but they have to really feel like you're giving them the, the helm, so to speak, in their respective role. And if you're always in there muddling, meddling and muddling because you're the founder and like, you know, this is your brand and you eat and breathe and you know better. There's a time and a moment for that, but it is so rare, actually. If you have the right people, your need to pull the CEO card or your need to pull rank or your need to like inject yourself and, and make a decision should come so rarely that, that you recognize it at those moments where, where in my early days, it was all, I was in every meeting, I was in every decision. I was, you know, and, 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 and even if I wasn't making them, I was influencing, I don't know. It, it's so hard to describe. I, and it's tricky because in the, in the earliest, earliest moments, you have to be, you have to own everything. There's just no way to survive. You have to do every. I was literally doing, doing the books on my futon in my parents' basement. You know, there was a time, but then there's a time where like, I'm just completely out of the accounting completely other than, you know, a, a top level review. Now I have to sign for it as a public company, but I'm out of it and I need to be out of it. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's so hard. It's, and it's, if it were easy, everyone would do it. How has your life changed since becoming a public company? You know, for me, it was a really great evolution. Uh, it's not always the case. You know, you'll hear all these horror stories and they're like, oh, everything was great. And then we went public and we have to, you know, pay all these fees and do all these meetings. But Lovesack had lived through, like I said, every kind of financing from venture capital to private equity. And each one of those financings helped us get to where we got to. I don't regret them. I don't regret those different modus operandi that we lived through. But for me, especially, becoming public was was really exciting because we really got to get out from under the thumb of venture capital or private equity and and be become our own person again. You know, we needed money to grow. Some businesses are able to do it with with very little or no financing, and and, and wow, you know, like hats off to them. Product-based businesses require so much money. Most people don't appreciate that. Like anything with a real physical product, they are just cash suckers in different stages. Now they can become cash machines and throw off incredible profits as, as Lovesack does today, finally. But in those middle stages, it requires more cash than most people have the, the ability to generate themselves. And most businesses do as well. So Long story short, um, we lived through all those times. Becoming public has been great. You know, we're now owned by, you know, thousands of, of individuals and, and funds. And, and it actually returns a lot of the power back to me and to my team, who I think should have it because we're making good decisions and driving the organization in a good way. On the other hand, like you're always on the chopping block. Like, you know, like you, the business has to perform. You can't just, you know, fold your arms, say, well, I'm the owner and this is how it's going to be. But there again comes the brutal honesty, the bright light of real competition and real marketplace forces driving real performance. So I, I, I really support the whole public company structure. I think all businesses should be run as if they were public companies. The scrutiny and accounting, the discipline in every realm, the controls, like 
that's how a company should be run. Now it's really difficult, especially when you're just surviving in the early days. You couldn't, you couldn't survive that kind of harsh light. You need the room to get your feet beneath you. But I think once a company reaches any meaningful size, I, I really actually appreciate the discipline that's come from it. Last question. What keeps you motivated? What is it that, Sean, I mean, you must, you know, have those moments when you look back and say, holy moly, holy crap, whatever you end up saying, this is pretty damn cool. And maybe you run into those high school friends in Utah who, you know, remember Sean as like, they can't believe it. Like, you, it's really, really cool. And you've got a physical product that you can sit on, that you can listen from. I mean, it's it's awesome. What is it that really keeps you motivated? Yeah, uh, I, it's become very cl- clear now to me. Um, and let me let me digress for one minute into Love Sacks kind of purpose now as it's evolved. Look, in the beginning, we just as I described to you, we were just surviving. I made beanbags to like pay off my debt, and you know, then we opened a store, and we had more debt, and then we were, you know. We just kept going, doing the next thing and, 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 and grew the company. And it was exciting. Back then, the motivation is just survival, you know, like, and, and it was exciting just to grow and, and to build something with your name on it. And it's, that's exciting for anyone. But as we invented sectionals and then realized why people loved them, it's this washable, changeable, life-proof couch people could have the rest of their life. And then we realized, wow, you know, it wasn't our intention, but that's the most sustainable solution to furniture that exists. I mean, because they can actually sustain because we just build them so well. You know, they're older than all my children, these pieces out here wearing their tent set of covers. I'm really proud of that. They're not in the landfill like most of the couches, even you've probably moved on from. That's just the way the world works. Well, then, of course, we're compelled to be to lean into that. And now we make all of our upholstery fabric from recycled plastic bottles. Little Love Sack recycles more plastic bottles than any company in the United States to home deck fabric, period. And and because couches are huge, we use millions and millions and millions of yards of fabric. It's all made from recycled plastic. Now, my point is that's led to this entire design ethos called Design for Life. Build things that are built to last a lifetime, designed to evolve, grow with you, change with you. No one else is designing in that way. Period. In any realm, I think it's the answer. You know, it's the book. It's the book we will write. It's it's we open source it. We blog about it. We want others to adopt this way. They won't because app like these guys would rather sell you the same thing every two years. We've we've allowed them to become the biggest company on the planet by selling us the same thing every two years. They should have been forced to innovate. They should have been forced to use their hundreds of billions in cash to hire designers to innovate into other categories in a way that's more sustainable than just thrusting all of this physical stuff, harvesting it from the earth only so that we could chew through it, be done with it, bury it in Africa, because where we ship it to, our e-waste. My, so what's my point? My point is I'm so inspired by what we're doing and the idea that that we can we can make things that are designed for life. Let me put it this way. If we are radically successful at what we do, there will be fewer couches sold. That's my category. What business book can you open that will tell you to shrink the category? Zero. But I'm dead serious about shrinking the couch category by selling so many of my couches. LoveSack does billions in just couches alone. Now, with my profits, I'll get to reinvest that in my design team, et cetera, and attack another category. We just entered home audio. There might be less home audio sold because we got involved with it. I want to spend the balance of my life on earth 
shrinking physical product categories because they never should have grown so large in the first place. Fashion, electronics, automobiles, appliances, take your pick. None of them should be as large as they are, but for the school that teaches us to make them obsolete so that you can sell them another one in a few years. That is garbage thinking, and I hate it. And that's what the free market economy has led to. Now, it's produced tons of wealth. I'm not anti-capitalistic. In fact, I want to use the judo of capitalism to get there. Like, essentially, I want to be so successful as a brand that other brands must be forced to copy the way that we think and do things because it's the path to success. Now, there may be fewer couches sold. Someday there may be fewer mobile phones sold because you can pop the camera out and replace it and upgrade it and it could last you 10 years, let's say. The money will find its way to services. The money will find its way to Disneyland. The money will find its way to restaurants. The money will find its way to grow in other ways. But the physical economy should have never raped and pillaged the earth so drastically over and over and over again just so that we could have this, you know, just so that corporations could become unnaturally large and consumers could become unnaturally, you know, wealthy. And so I made a beanbag and people liked it and I just kept making more for friends. I could have never imagined it could evolve into a vision and a purpose that is this meaningful. It took, by the way, you know, everyone's looking for a purpose. Like, what's your purpose statement? Let it come. Spend some time. Just sell couches. You might observe, oh, people like these couches because they're built to last a lifetime and they evolve with them. Whoa, wow. You know, and now, now we have this whole ethos of sustainability that's unlike any other. But that came after 20 years of just surviving in business. So if you don't have a purpose today, you're not a heartless, soulless business. You're just, you're a toddler, you know, let your purpose come to you when you're an adolescent or a young adult or even an older adult. And I'm really proud of what we've built at Lovesack and where we're going. That's what motivates me. No, I love it. And that is really motivational. And I think that you touched on on this too, that you're learning all the time, right? And you're pushing yourself to continue learning about new things. I mean, you know, 1998, you weren't thinking about this, right? You were just trying to create a great product that you could sell and and uh, where you are today with the business. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. So it's uh, such a pleasure to talk to you, Sean. And I mean, you definitely described a leader for sure and everything that you were talking about and uh, a visionary leader and somebody who is just um, has created an incredible product and incredible company that Everybody needs to go out and buy a love sack today because it is definitely something that you guys are doing all the right things. So really, really incredible. Where's the best place? I know you guys have stores as well, but people can go online. Yeah, we we only sell through our own channel. So lovesack.com, lovesack showrooms. We have 180 touch points now, including uh, shop-in shops inside of some Best Buys. That's growing, but mostly our own love sack proper showrooms. They're in a, a mall or a street location near you. How much are you doing? We're a U.S. company. How much international um, business are you doing right now? Yeah, zero international business. We hold all of our patents worldwide and our trademarks, and, and we will certainly take this concept uh, worldwide. But, but the truth is, even at our scale now, we're still only a couple percent of the couch category. It's such a huge category. So we're focused on North America still. We hold the right to go international. We're excited to go international. Um, but uh, 
you know, we're trying to make good sound decisions. That's another one. So often I think these companies go international because it sounds so sexy. It's all ego, man. They want to be in Dubai. They want to be in your, and it's like, just pump your brakes. Yeah. Build a profitable, by the way, most of the companies that, that are, you know, we get thought of with these new economy, direct consumer companies, they've never made a dime. They never will, by the way, most of them, they'll make their founders rich. They'll make some private equity group rich who pawned it off on the next private equity group or took it public and they'll never even make a profit and they'll be gone. Meanwhile, little old love sack will just keep doing its thing profitably until we're billions and billions. Yeah. And so build that kind of company, whatever happened to, you know, that I think in this day and age is wacky. There's, you know, so, but again, ego driven, money driven, you know, just personal gain driven as opposed to like, let's build something that's good for the world. Yeah. Really passionate about that. I love what you're doing. I love it. Well, we need to talk more about the plastic bottles um, because that could be a terrific partnership for sure. So, well, thank you. I could talk for hours uh, with you about this. It's so interesting. And thanks everybody for listening to this incredible episode. Definitely give it five stars. It really helps with the rating. We really appreciate Sean coming on. And just a reminder, I can be found online at Kara Golden, all over social. And my book, Undaunted, talks about the journey of building the company that I built, Hint, with lots of incredible people as well. And we are here now every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks again, Sean, and have a great rest of the week. Thanks all for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And I want to thank all of our guests and our sponsors. And finally, our listeners, keep the great comments coming in. And one final plug, if you have not read or listened to my book, Undaunted, please do so. You will hear all about my journey, including founding, scaling, and building the company that I founded, Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks everyone for listening and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.